Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The, the implication is that, that when you go and restore someone, it is not with the, with the, with the attitude or with the heart that, that of, of someone that is superior than the other, that is greater than the other, one that has not messed up like the other one has. And so I am here to rescue you through my spirituality. The idea is that you go with the humility of heart, understanding, the, but for the grace of God, you are in their, their shoes as well. In verse number four of Galatians six, Paul says, let each one test his own work and then his reason, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. One, one pastor wrote that love without truth is harshness. I'm sorry. Yeah, love. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our sin. And so when we look at Eliphaz and we look at at, uh, Job's friends, we want to note the attitude and the motives of their heart in dealing with Job. Beginning in verse number one of chapter four of the book of Job, Eliphaz is introduced. Eliphaz the Temanite answered and he said, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many and you have strengthened the weak hands And this is really giving testimony to Job himself. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. So so he is saying, saying, Job, you have been a faithful counselor throughout the years, but now look what happens in verse number five. Now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? In other words, um, Eliphaz is simply saying, hey, buck up, man. This is what you gave out before. Listen to your own counsel. Now it's turned. Now the tables are turned, and now you are impatient. Now you are questioning God. Now you are questioning your fate. You're questioning your life. Stop it. And he scolds him. His authority is found in verse number 12. And, and this is important for us to understand as well. There is an authority by which we speak. Know this, that when we approach someone and we give, when we offer to give counsel, we do not approach them and we do not give counsel based on the authority of my own self. The biblical counseling is approaching with the authority of the word of God. Here is his authority. The word was brought to me stealthily, my ear received the whisper of it, the thoughts from visions of, of the night when deep sleep falls on men. Dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern the appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. So Eliphaz's authority and source of information was his personal experience. Specifically, he had a vision. 
And he was speaking based on the vision that was given to him and the voice that spoke to him in that vision. Now, I want to, I want to exercise caution here because many, many believe that Job and his friends were contemporaries of the patriarchs who was living in Canaan um, during the time of Israel's trek in Egypt. So at that time, there was no written word of God. And so we want to be careful in, in, in how we see his authority. But on the other hand, for those of us who are on this side of the cross, the New Testament saint, for you and for me, we have the word of God. And the New Testament saint lives with the word of God as his final authority. Maybe not our only authority, but our final authority. And the best counsel that you can offer is grounded in the truth of the scriptures and not your personal experience. Be very careful when you base your faith upon your experience. I am not saying that your personal experience is invalid and that it cannot be used of God to minister to others or to even, even encourage your heart. But what I am saying is that if your experience contradicts the Bible, the Bible tr- always trumps your experience. Notice his argument in verse number seven of chapter four. Remember who that was, who, who, who that was, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God, they perish, and by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. So Eliphaz implies, or Eliphaz's argument is, you sow what you reap. No, you reap what you sow. (laughs) I'm being dyslexic today, backwards and everything. You reap what you sow. Um, That's what he was saying. The reason you're, you're, you're facing these troubles is because you have sin. So that was his implication. Job was facing affliction at the hand of God because he was guilty of secret sins. Now, he was not incorrect that God judges the wicked and that we really do reap what we sow, but he was incorrect in his assumptions about Job, and he was incorrect about God's actions. Now, back to verse 17 in chapter 4. Look in your Bibles. Here's the voice that spoke to Eliphaz, and this is what he heard, and this is what he presents. Here he presents two pertinent questions, and we're going we're to make mention of this, and then we're going to come back to this at the end. This is referring to uh, the need for a mediator. Look in verse 17. He asks this question, can mortal man be in, right before, in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Now, beginning in verse number 18, he explains, or he expands on that thought. Even in his servants, even his, in his servants, he puts no trust. In his angels, he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and and that without wisdom? In other words, even the angels, he is saying, even the angels and other heavenly servants 
fall far short of the glory of God. That's the point he's making. Even the heavenlies, the heavenly beings fall short of God's glory. The Lord cannot put trust in his servants. His holy eye finds error in his angels. If these heavenly beings fall short of God's expectations, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay or in these, these, these bodies, physical bodies? He goes on to say, man is, man is built on earth. He is derived from earth. He is limited to earth. We are made from dust, and to dust we will return. In this world, man can be crushed as easily as a moth. Man's lifespan is but for a day compared to the heavenly beings. So insignificant is he that he passes away unobserved like an insect. The death of man is like the collapse of a tent. When the supporting cord is pulled up, the tent collapses and the inhabitant perishes from the earth. Worldly wisdom deserts man from, the, from uh, when he faces his, his mortality. So he's talking about really the frailty of man. How can, the frail, how can frail mortal man have any access to the almighty God? I want to ask you to put pocket that away in your mind for just a few minutes. I want to introduce you to, to, um, to his counsel, and I want to introduce you then to Bildad, and then we're going to come back to this. Look at his counsel in chapter number 5, verse number 8. The counsel that he gives to him is, as for me, this is what I would do. I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth. He sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. That's good counsel. But it's poor application. He assumed that Job was not seeking God at that time, when in fact Job truly was. The problem was not that Job was not seeking after God. The problem was that God was working according to the divine mystery of his will, which required that Job simply trust him for the unknown. God did not give Job an answer. Let's meet Bildad in chapter number 8. His attitude, verse number one, Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. In the same pattern of of Eliphaz, Bildad spoke in defense of God's character and it's good. These words are good. He is defending the character of God. But he rebuked Job for challenging him. However, his assumptions and his accusations were unwarranted and they were uncharitable. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Essentially, your kids deserve to die. So get over it. The truth is, neither Job nor Bildad knew why the Lord took Job's kids from him. Look at his authority, verse number eight. For inquire, please, of bygone ages. 
and consider what the fathers have searched out, for we are but of yesterday and know nothing for our days on earth are a shadow. Here's his, here's his, his authority. We stand on the shoulders of men who have gone before. Again, good Good counsel. Again, like Eliphaz, Bildad's source of authority was not bad in its context. It was bad in its application. Bildad's authority rested in, a, in recurrent history and tradition. The pattern of God's works and his ways as recorded by those of bygone ages. In other words, we look to the history. We look at how God has worked in the past. We look at the, what has been recorded for us today. And th- that's good. Right? Uh, the, the, the psalmist even said, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. God has given to us his word. For the New Testament said, He has given to us his inspired word, so that reveals the very thing, this very thing. How does, what is God like? How, how does he work? And what are his ways? We learn those things so that we might know him and that we might understand what is taking place in our lives. And when we don't understand it, we can trust him for who he is. Look at his counsel and his his argument and his counsel in verse number five. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your, be, your, though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Bildad was incorrect in his assumptions. First, he was incorrect in assuming that Job's affliction was the direct result of hidden sin. By the way, many of us are guilty of the same thing, aren't we? Maybe not overtly, but sometimes in our heart as we see those who are in a, um, in a difficult situation that oftentimes our hearts respond, well, they probably should have done this or that. It's their fault. The truth is we don't really know. We don't always know. So Bildad was incorrect in assuming that Job's affliction was a direct result of hidden sin. We find in the first two chapters that that was not the truth. God himself, on two occasions, referred to Job as being a righteous man, upright in all his ways, that eschews evil. So his suffering, his affliction, was not the result of direct sin that God was correcting. Bildad was incorrect in assuming that Job was not already pleading with the Almighty for mercy. He was, in fact, doing that very thing. He was incorrect in assuming that God could be put in a box, whereas if you do this, then God will do that. Again, we find ourselves guilty many times. If you just do this, take three pills, God will do this. Everything will be okay. We do certain things expecting God to respond in certain ways. We like him to work in our own framework, our own theology, our own, 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 own thought patterns of how we, how we would respond. I want to move on. Uh, we'll meet Zophar next week. But I want to look particularly this morning at Job's frustration and his response, first of all with his friends and then foremost, his frustration and his response to God. And it's kind of uncomfortable as you read through these chapters and really consider what Job is saying. First of all, look in, verse number, in chapter number six in your Bibles. We'll look and see 
Job's frustration at his response with his friends. By the way, both his friends, both Job and his friends are pretty catty with each other. I mean, some of the things that they say toward each other is, they must have been really good friends to be able to speak to each other that way. Beginning in verse number 14 of chapter six, I'm gonna read from the New Living Translation, which is not a translation, but a paraphrase. It's a thought-for-thought translation, but I think it explains this portion very well of what Job is saying. He's describing his friends. He's describing Bildad and Eliphaz, and, and even before, before um, uh, Zophar speaks, he describes them. One should be kind, in verse number 14, uh, one should be kind to a fainting friend, but you have accused me without the slightest fear of God. My brother, you have proved as unreliable as a brook. It floods when there is ice and snow, but in hot weather, it disappears. Just like the caravans. The caravans turn aside to be refreshed, but there is nothing there to drink, and so they perish. When caravans from Tema and from Sheba uh, stop for water there, their hopes are dashed. And so my hopes in you are dashed. You turn away from me in terror and you refuse to help. Why? Have I ever asked you for one slightest thing? Have I begged you for a present? Have I ever asked for your help? All I want is a reasonable answer. Then I will keep quiet. Tell me, what have I done wrong? It is wonderful to speak the truth, but your criticisms are not based on fact. You're going to condemn me just because I impulsively cried out in desperation. That would be like, a, like injuring a helpless orphan or selling a friend. Look at me. Would I lie to your face? Stop assuming my guilt, for I am righteous. Don't be so unjust. Don't I know the difference between right and wrong? Would I not admit it if I had sinned? Now, we've seen Job react righteously to the snatching away of every material possession. Um, We've seen him react and respond righteously, having his children, his loved ones, taken away from him. He kept his integrity when his body was plagued with sores and he was struck with chronic pain. But now his, his his friends arrive. And like many of us, this is where the real test came. They began an onslaught of insinuations and accusations that were not true. His friends attacked his motives. They attacked his character. Theodore Epp writes about this, says, possibly nothing will stir up the old man in us quicker than something like this. It is hard for us not to rebel when accused unjustly. So to be accused of secret evil conduct and branded a hypocrite aroused Job to a carnal self-defense. He rebelled at the injustice of his friends and then went on to say things about God that later he abhorred. In chapter 32 I'm speaking now. In chapter 32, a fourth friend named Elihu comes on it, on the scene and finally speaks truth to Job and to his friends. 
the author tells us that Elihu burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. So Job begins to speak out of his frustration and out of his self-righteousness regarding God's relationship with his creation, particularly mankind and specifically himself. He wrestles with the realities of God's relationship with man. Look in chapter 9 in your Bibles, verse number 2. He asks this question, how can a man be in the right before God? Remember, it was Eliphaz, I asked you to put this away in your head. He first posed this question in chapter 4, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? The, the dilemma, the dilemma with, with which Job wrestles is the relationship between the God who transcends all of creation and man. the relationship between the creator and creation. Not only in his affliction, but in a hold of life. In his query to God, he makes at least five observations about God's dealing with him specifically and God's dealing with man. These observations are not necessarily true, but these are observations that he is, that he is making from a cynical point of view. The first observation he makes is, God won't leave me alone. Let's back up in your Bibles to chapter 7, beginning in verse number 12. He speaks as one who is looking for answers regarding the grievous afflictions he was experiencing. Therefore, he writes with that sense of cynicism, beginning in verse number 12, am I a sea? Am I a sea monster that you set guard over me? You hover over me. I mean, the idea is you hover over me, you're always watching me. When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, and then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone. For my days are a breath. It's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? He's talking to God. Leave me me alone. Verse 17, what is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? You visit him every morning. You test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? I can't even swallow without your attention. If I sin, what do I do to you, you who watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Now, although Job speaks with cynicism here, his speech calls to us, calls us to consider both the sustaining hand of God and his divine prerogative to interact with his creation as he so desires. It is, in fact, by God's mercies that he sets his heart 
on mankind. And it is his sovereign right to behave toward us as he pleases. That's something we need to consider and to think about. God has every right to behave toward his creation as he pleases. And it is by God's mercy that he pays such close attention to his creation. Why? Because were God to leave us alone, we would immediately be thrown into complete chaos or cease to exist altogether. For in him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and here's the phrase, and in him all things hold together. We can thank God that he is ever in our business. We may not like it. We may want to say, leave me alone, but you better be glad that he doesn't leave you alone. He holds all things together. It's interesting that the psalmist addresses the same matter of God's sovereign interaction that Job does. Yet he does so not from cynicism, but from the perspective of assurance and of awe. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me. You have known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways, even before the word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God, you are intimately involved in your creation. You are intimately involved in my life. You know everything there is about me. You are in my business. In Job's cynicism, he reminds us that God is God, period. God is God, period. And it is his prerogative to behave and to act toward his creation any way he pleases. Now, according to his own self-revelation, he always acts within the framework of his essence, but he is nonetheless our sovereign God. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor? And another for dishonor? Turning your Bibles to chapter 9. The second observation that Job makes. God has an unfair advantage. You think? Beginning in verse number 3. If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. And that's being generous. Verse number four, speaking of God, he is wise in heart, mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger, he shakes the earth 
Out of its place, its pillars tremble. He commands the sun, and it does not rise. He seals up the stars. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who made the bear and Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the south? Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Behold, he passes by me. I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. God can do as he pleases. God has the advantage. The third observation, God always wins. Chapter 9, verse 14. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for the mercy of my accuser. Look in verse number 19. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would reprove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. Well, Job is arguing his innocence. Job is arguing his righteousness. Um, Job is not arguing that he is without sin. He is arguing that even in his righteousness, he is unable to stand before God in his own holiness. God transcends all creation in every way. That means that he is outside of creation. He is the creator. He is not the creation. He is not like the creation. He is different, altogether different from anything that we know. He stands outside of creation. He is holy, he is righteous, he is pure, and man is not. We've all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Finally, the fifth observation that he makes is that God seems to be unfair. Verse 24, the earth is given to the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. In other words, he's saying that it seems that the wicked prosper and that the wicked step into positions of leadership. He covers the faces of the judges. Then he asks this question, if, that's, if it's not from him, who then? If God is not governing those who would reign and that the wicked reign, who does? Before we move to Job's concluding observation, let me just say, say this as we read through, as we read, as we've just read through these passages, that that I think, I think we need, I think we need to be comfortable with the fact that God is God, and that we are not. While He has revealed Himself in His Word, so that we might know Him, He remains higher than we are. We do not know all there is to know, know about God. And we need not only to be comfortable with 
that discomfort, but we need to rejoice in it. We need to rejoice in the fact that we do not comprehend all that is God. My thoughts, the Lord says, are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. In fact, the more we understand the incomprehensibility of our God and the absolute holiness and righteousness of God as opposed to who we are in the little peons conditions that we are in, the more we see the glory of God providing a mediator. Job's response and Job's understanding for this is found in verse number 32 of chapter 9. God is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. My ESV notes that this might be worded, would that there were an arbiter between us. The New American Standard Version translates the word arbiter as umpire. The New King James translates it mediator. Now this is a recurring theme in the book of Job, so we'll visit again in weeks to come. But in chapter 16, he claims, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friend scorn me, my eye pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. You see, with Job's recognition that God is greater than anything else, is greater than him, it had brought him to the understanding that he needed someone outside of himself to, to claim his, his, um, his position before God if he were to have anything, anything to do with God. Now, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that you are a New Testament saint? And aren't you glad that there is, in fact, a mediator who argues the case of a man with God? And aren't you glad that that mediator between you and God is not me? And that you don't have to come to me and confess all your sins. And you don't have to rely on me to absolve you from your sins. And I am eternally grateful that I am not him either. I don't want to hear your stuff, and I don't want to bear that burden, and I don't want to have to put my hand on your shoulders and on the shoulders of God. Job understood that because God is who he is and because of, the, of, of who man is, self-representation was a futile, futile and, eternally, and it was eternally damning, damning. Because of God's mercy... And because he decreed to have a people for his own sake, he provided the only arbiter that could actually stand before him on our behalf. That would be his son. Because God, the son, would advocate on behalf of man, our arbiter became a man. 
And because our mediator would serve as our advocate, representing sinners who are guilty of treason, he's a defense lawyer, defending those who truly are guilty, he's representing sinners who are guilty of treason against God, he himself paid the debt of sin on the cross on our behalf. His resurrection affirms that his sacrifice satisfied God's just requirement. And therefore, John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. In Job's language, I'm sorry, in the translator's Job's language, we have an arbiter with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. How does he advocate for us? He advocates for us by claiming himself to be the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We need an arbiter. We need a mediator. We need high thoughts of God to remind us of the glory that, that is in the gospel in that he has provided for us his son to be our redeemer and our arbiter. Thank you, dear Heavenly Father, for the reminder that you are um, that you transcend creation. You are unlike anything we could we could ever conjure up in our own minds. And yet, and yet to consider that your desire is that you would have for yourself a people for your own sake. You have desired for your enemies, those who despise you, those who hate you, those who are hostile toward you, you have desired that they may be made, that they may that we may be made right, so that we might be able to dine with you and to dwell with you for all eternity. Even that is beyond our comprehension. But to add that you have provided the means for that to take place through your Son causes us to fall on our faces before you in thanksgiving and praise. May that be renewed each and every day. Teach us, Lord, to have a high view of God. Help us to live with the understanding and with the knowledge and the acknowledgement that we serve a God that is sovereign over all creation and that we are your servants, we are your people because of your mercy and because of your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.